What an honor to have all of you here today. Let's give everybody a warm welcome today. Amen. We're honored that you have chosen to be with us. We'll let you be seated. Our ushers are going to wait upon you for our Sunday school offering. This goes to our Sunday uh, morning education ministry, so give as unto the Lord. And our main service will be receiving our main offering today, but be uh, be aware this is our Sunday school offering, give as unto the Lord. Let me make a few announcements today. Uh, today is fifth Sunday, the fifth Sunday of the month of June, and uh, that happens once a quarter during the year, so there are four of those five-week Sundays, and we have a fellowship usually on those days, and so today's no different uh, on this fifth Sunday, our fellowship will be from 5 to 7 at the Forbes State Park in the stagecoach area, which is, I believe, the one all the way around the lake on the north side. Uh, so uh, if that's not correct, don't hold me to it, uh, but I think that's where that is. And we'll be gathering there, and there'll be uh, bring your lawn chairs. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago in error there was a potluck. There is no potluck. Uh, but it, in, in fact, if you if you want to eat, just bring food yourself, I guess. But there'll be uh, kayaks and jet ski rides and boat rides and hopefully a cool breeze and some shade. Amen. Amen. It was hot yesterday, but uh, bring your lawn chair uh, or chairs. So be mindful of that. Also, not this coming week, but the next week, July 10th through the 12th, is Illinois. Our state uh, camp meeting, Illinois District Camp Meeting, and that'll be uh, from July the 10th through the 12th, so be mindful of that. That's in Wapella, Illinois. And then uh, thank you to all of those who came yesterday to go uh, promote our uh, Bible study that's beginning in Carlisle. And uh, we had a great group yesterday and uh, got rid of all of our information, and uh, I think we've got pretty much the whole town blanketed. Amen. It was warm yesterday, but God was good, and uh, we're looking forward to that. But the, the uh, first uh, Sunday launch, which is a Bible study launch on July the 14th, it'll be at 2.30 p.m., so we wanted to make you aware of all of that. We hope you have a great Independence Day on the 4th on Thursday. Brother Kyle loves this celebration our independence from the United Kingdom and all those folks over there. <laughs> so be sure and celebrate. Be sure and get Brother Kyle some gifts for July the 4th, Independence Day. A few years ago, I was preaching in Canada at a youth convention, and it was, um, uh, oh, now I, I had it just, uh, who's the revolutionary guy that was the traitor? What, uh, Benedict Arnold. It was Benedict Arnold Day, and they all dressed up in their old regalia and and celebrated Benedict Arnold. And there I was. <laughs> I said, we don't celebrate Benedict Arnold Day in the U.S. <laughs> it was interesting. Anyway, uh, I was glad to be there, and the Lord moved anyway, even with all us foreigners there. Somebody say Amen. Uh, so there'll be more announcements on the screen behind me during the main service, and uh, be mindful of those. 
Amen. I want us to pray together and ask the Lord to be with us today. We're having a wonderful time of study today, and I hope you're encouraged by it. I know I this is stuff that I really enjoy today, so I'm going to enjoy it. I hope you do as well, but I want us to pray and ask the Lord to be with us today. Father, thank you for your blessings, God, and your goodness to us today, the privilege to be gathered in your house. Lord, I pray you would anoint every class today, anoint this class. Move on us by your spirit, God. Let us to appreciate what we have today and what you've given us, O oh God. I praise you, Lord, for so great a salvation, Lord, for all you've done for us. Anoint this class today in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Uh, our, our new quarter begins uh, this, uh, the, today, actually. So if you ordered a book, those books are in. Hopefully you already have it. But today, before we begin our four-week series, uh, which the first one is The Great I Am, and we're looking forward to that. But today, we're going to uh, take just a moment in our discipleship project lessons. Uh, this is what they, they on the fourth Sunday, fifth Sunday of the month, they do a family Sunday. What we call it Celebration Sunday. Everybody say Celebration Sunday. So today is Celebration Sunday. But uh, the lesson will be the same, and it's our apostolic heritage. And uh, I thank God for the heritage that we have. I thank God for an apostolic church in this community. Now, before I get started today, we're going to, uh, there's something that I am accustomed to doing. I usually don't uh, say any uh, names of mainstream denominations or denominational churches. I don't talk about that. Uh, I may talk about belief systems, but I won't call any names. Today's going to be a little different, and it's going to be different just because of the historical references we'll make today. So I want to make sure you understand that. But as we go forward today, I want you to uh, realize that uh, the apostolic message, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism in the wonderful name of Jesus is not something that just started yesterday. Amen. Amen. Somebody say amen. Uh, and as I've gotten older and, uh, you know, continued to, to study in this regard, you recognize that uh, there are some uh, groups that elevate the writings of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century over the writings of the apostles and the ministry of Jesus Christ in the books of the New Testament. Amen. Now, I don't want to do that. I believe that what Jesus said is important, and when you begin to study what happened in the centuries after the apostles passed away, uh, it's enlightening. Uh, you, you begin to form a deep appreciation for what you have experienced in God. Amen. Amen. And I'm thanking the Lord today for what we have, and it's about a heritage of truth. I thank God uh, that we can find not only a connection through history, but we can find a connection today from what is preached and taught in this church all the way back to the New Testament. We believe the Bible. And if some guy in the third century had issues with the Scripture, then he's got issues with the Scripture. I'm not going to elevate him above Peter. 
Anybody hearing what I'm saying? I'm going on record today. I'm not going to elevate somebody that lived in the fourth century above Jesus Christ. I'm not going to do it. Everybody okay? All right. So right at the outset, we're going to exalt the Word of God above the writings of, histor- of, of history. Scripture is very important, and the writers that wrote the New Testament, Paul and James and Peter, these were men, most of them that had been with Jesus. Paul wrote on over two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, but he saw him on the road to Damascus. Praise the Lord. Well, anyway, uh, amen. Okay, let's, let's start today. Let's look at Ephesians 2 and 20. Uh, and this is very, very important. To be a church, I think you got to be built on something. And Ephesians 2 and 20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Amen. I said amen. This church is built on the apostles and the prophets. Now those are very important terms. Jesus said to the apostles, uh, he, he was praying in John 17, he said, I pray for those who will believe on you through their word, talking about the apostles. The apostles preached and taught some very important things. They expected some very important things when they uh, gathered together. We should expect those same things. Somebody say amen. And I want to preach and teach what the apostles preached and taught. Because that's the foundation of the church. And if I am a part of the church, which is the bride of Christ, the foundation is not some council. The foundation is the apostles. Everybody okay? All right. Uh, There's a story about George R. Farrow uh, who... Uh, wrote a very important song, a very uh, familiar song. We'll talk about that as we get close to the end of our lesson today. We may even sing it, but uh, Don Martin, uh, a preacher, was studying, uh, doing some research on the life of George Farrell, and he, uh, he, he asked the archivist, have you got any information on George Farrell? And he said, well, the most we have really, uh, from what I can gather, he's born in 1885 in Montana, passed away in Cisco, Texas in 1950. He said, but I believe you may be able to find some information in this location. So that he, he began to track down some information, and, and armed with those instructions, he found a large, what he called a treasure trove of very valuable information on this man, George Farrow. And the reason... Uh, uh, the reason he was looking for this was because there was an old famous oneness song that George Farrell wrote, and so he wanted to study his life. Uh, why is this important to us today? Because Edmund Burke once said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Somebody say Amen. And in the words of the psalmist, 145 and verse 4, it says, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. We are God-empowered and uh, we we are motivated to share this message with every generation. The truth endures to every generation. We are not here by accident. What happened in the early 1900s and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit didn't happen by accident. 
we are here because generations shall truth endures to every generation. I thank God for what I have today. I appreciate what I have today. Amen. Amen. In the archives, uh, uh, in Don Martin found uh, some handwritten letters from George Farrow from Los Angeles to his girlfriend, Lula Brumwell, who lived in Portland, Oregon. They were written between 1914 or during the 1914-1915 years while he was involved in a Pentecostal movement in Los Angeles, California, and attended what is called or was called the Seventh Street Mission. Uh, he informed Lula in his letters that he had been baptized there at the Seventh Street Mission on January the 3rd, 1914, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the Seventh Street Mission was a church established by a man by the name of William Durham in 1911 after William Seymour. Now, these names are all, if you, I'm not going to do the research for you. You can, you know, you're two clicks away from all this stuff. William Seymour should be a familiar name to apostolics and Pentecostals. William Seymour was the leader of the Azusa Street Revival Center in Los Angeles, California. And William Durham and William Seymour didn't see eye to eye on, a, on the preaching of a doctrine called the finished work of Calvary. Now some of you say, well what in the world is that? Well, uh, before this people believed you were saved, then you were sanctified, and then you were filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, you you experienced salvation by faith, then you... By whatever means, the Spirit would sanctify you. In other words, when you became holy enough, you would receive the Holy Ghost. But there was a revelation of when Jesus said, it is finished. <laughs> what they noticed were people that weren't holy enough were receiving the Spirit of God in their life. Now, wait a minute. You hadn't cleaned up, so you can't get the Spirit until you get clean. There's still some of that going around anyway. And so there was this discrepancy about, uh, well, you know, you're going to be sanctified before you get the Spirit. Well, all of a sudden there's this revelation of, wait a minute, Jesus finished the work at the cross. Anybody believe that in here? The work is finished. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. <laughs> Anybody glad you know that? Well, William Seymour, as spiritual and as powerful as, as we know in history, those things that happened at Azusa Street, William Durham and William Seymour didn't see eye to eye on what was called the finished work of Calvary. So William Durham went and began the 7th Street Mission in Los Angeles, California. Lula... Uh, was involved in the Pentecostal mission in Portland, Oregon, who was George Farrell's uh, girlfriend, ultimately would become his wife. In 1907, Florence Crawford and Clara Lum left the Azusa Street Mission and started the Apostolic Faith Evangelistic Organization in Portland, Oregon, and their church was called the Pentecostal Mission. Farrell, George Farrell, had converted to Pentecostalism sometime in the early 1900s. Now this lesson, it's important for us to recognize a godly heritage, particularly a New Testament heritage. Everybody say a New Testament heritage. 
I'm talking about a New Testament heritage. I'm not talking about a creed that came up in the third century. I'm talking about a New Testament heritage. I want to go on record today. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? Uh, a New Testament heritage. And it's important we transfer it to the next generation. Amen. The events of the Azusa Street Revival and the Arroyo Seco Camp Meeting in Los Angeles, which happened between the years 1906 to 1915, are believed to have helped recover the teachings and the practices of the New Testament church. In fact, just a few years ago, there was the 100th anniversary, and uh, you can do your own personal study on all the denominations that get their that originate from the outpouring of the Spirit at Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. There's a long list of organizations, churches, organized denominational churches that began with that revival that happened at Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. Um, and, and that's very important. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, before we get to that, uh, we are all a product of a family. Your family has customs that you are a part of. There are things you do at birthdays or at holiday times that other people may not do. And our earthly heritage is bound uh, to our parents and to their parents and those who came before. Let me give you a little example. My, my middle name is Calvin. My first name is Joe. Uh, and I'm a junior. My dad is Joe Calvin. And uh, back four generations, every male in my paternal uh, family, their middle name is Calvin. It's just something, everybody's middle name's Calvin. The first name's different, but the middle name's Calvin. So that's a heritage. I, I didn't name any of either one of my daughters Calvin, but if I'd had a boy, we, we'd have had a strong influence that the middle name would be Calvin. Everybody got that? Your family may think that's crazy, but for me, that's just kind of the way it goes. It's Pleasant Calvin Jean, it's Eunice Calvin Jean, it's Joe Calvin Jean, and it's Joe Calvin Jean Jr. Amazing. I thought you'd be shouting and dancing by now. No. It's just a heritage. It's something we do. But uh, we get that from our parents. They get that from their parents. There's one statistic that, that is interesting, and it says this. Everyone in the world today is no farther kin than a 15th cousin. We're all related. Uh-oh. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're my family. And the Bible tells us a godly heritage extends to many generations. I thank God for the godly heritage that we have today. If you're here today and you've been born again recently and you say, well, my family didn't go to church or my parents did, didn't go to church or, I, you know, I, this is, you can begin a heritage in your life today. Amen. Something's began in your life. Praise God. It reminds me of what's written in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, talking about idols, nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God, and for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. I'm glad that verse isn't done yet. Be bad to stop right there. We'd be without hope if we stopped right there. 
visiting the sins of your fathers up to four generations on those that don't serve me and hate me. Verse 6, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I'm thankful that's the end of the story. <laughs> We're all born in sin and shaping in iniquity, but he gave us mercy. <laughs> And he said, sin can go to three and four generations, but I know how to show mercy to thousands of generations. Come on, give the Lord a good hand clap if you're thankful for his mercy in your life. Amen. We must also have the same resolve as Joshua in Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil to you, unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day. Whom you will serve, whether the gods of your that your father served, and were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Your decision is not only for you, it's for your house. We're going to serve the Lord. So to be a part of a heritage, you must be a part of a family. To have a heritage, you got to be a part of a family. And God had to be a part of the human family to be our kinsman, what the Bible calls our kinsman redeemer. The redeemer had to be a man. Genesis 3, he, uh, Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, he says to man, I'll give you dominion over everything in the earth. From that verse on, everything that happened in the earth had to happen through a man. Because God gave man dominion in the earth. And if we were going to be redeemed, the Redeemer had to be a man. But he also had to be perfect. He couldn't be taken from among sinners. He had to be perfect. So he had to be a man, but he had to be perfect. Oh, I'm so glad that we know who he is. God was manifest in the flesh. Yes, he became a man. The prophet said his name will be Emmanuel, which is it's interpreted God with us. Jesus was God in flesh, a man among men to redeem men. I'm thankful that he came. Amen. I'm thankful that he came. And Jesus' mission was to find a bride. I read it earlier, built on the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. He's talking about the church. Everybody say the church. The church and the bride are synonymous terms. They're used interchangeably in Scripture. Jesus came to produce a church that would, a bride, that would, he would make ready to live with him eternally. It's not enough for him just to come save us. He wants us to be back there in Eden with him, walking with him every day. He's going to restore our fellowship with him when this, this temporal veil is over. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Oh, praise God. There is a place that he's prepared. He said, I'm going to prepare it that where I am, there you may. That's the whole point. He wants us with him. We're not there yet, but we're going there. Oh, I feel something in this service today. Jesus' mission was to find a bride, to make a bride ready to live for him and with him eternally. If that was his mission, he told the disciples, it'd be nice. I thought the other day, you know, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was here on earth today? All those questions you got for him, he could answer them. All those, all those ills in the world, he could fix them. But you know what? He said, I must go away. If I don't go away, the comforter cannot come. 
right? So he went away. He came on a mission to find a bride, and then he left. But he told them, go and wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. Oh, praise God. I'm going so the Comforter can come. So Pentecost, everybody say Pentecost. Pentecost was to put Jesus in the heart of his bride. Jesus did not want to be with them. He said, I'm with you now, but I shall be in you. He said, I don't want to be just with you. I want to be in you. I want this power to go everywhere you go. Somebody say amen. So Pentecost was to put Jesus in the heart of his bride, the church. Pentecost is not, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, people say, what, what church you go to? You know, you, you learned how to kind of cough it out. <coughs> Pentecost. You know what I'm talking about. You're laughing. You, what church you go to? Pentecost. Excuse me. I remember a time when we were on the other side of the tracks. Holy rollers. Speaking in tongues was of the devil. Well, anybody hearing what I'm saying? I wish you'd just do a little study of how many uh, believers are, claim to speak with tongues. You'll be shocked. And they're not all sitting in this room today. Amen. Uh, Pentecost is not a term we should be ashamed of. Because it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Ghost was poured out. Praise God. And when you read about the customs of the day of Pentecost, how the Jews would celebrate it, there would be an all-night reading of the Torah. In fact, uh, the children, there was a little bit of Bible quizzing in that. When you study that, they would, the kids would memorize some of those uh, selected passages, and they would get prizes for uh, memorizing those verses. Those are some of those customs of the old feast day of Pentecost. But on this old feast day in A.D. 33, the followers of Jesus were assembled in a second-story room as instructed by the Lord ten days earlier, go and wait for the promise. Don't go do anything else. Go and wait. Jesus had told them they would experience his promise, the promise of the Father, in fact, John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. To receive it, you got to see it. Neither do they know them, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Make no mistake about it. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is Jesus coming into your heart. That's what it is. That's what Jesus said. I'm coming. Oh, anybody glad you got the Holy Ghost? Anybody glad you've been baptized with the Spirit of Christ? Amen. Something else very interesting. He told him to wait. Uh, I want you to be mindful. Jesus' mother Mary was one of the charter members of the Acts 2 revival, as well as Jesus' brothers, his family. If Mary needed the Holy Ghost, I need the Holy Ghost. Hello? If James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, if he need the Holy Ghost, I need the Holy Ghost. Jesus' family, Mary, was one of the charter members. 
And so of that revival in Acts chapter 2, not only that, it gives validity to what they felt Jesus was preaching and teaching. If Mary, James, and his brother, Jesus' brothers, would have thought Jesus was off his rocker, they'd have never shown up to the upper room. But they were there. Mary was present with her family. In fact, Luke 24, 49 says this, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Praise God. And you're in a church that believes that still happens. You're in a church that believes we still need the power of God. Yes, we do. Not, not only that, but the Pentecostal experience changed the disciples. Before Pentecost, read it for yourselves. They were in doubt. Uh, they ran. They fled. In fact, the night Jesus was taken into custody, you couldn't find any of them. And right after that, some of those that were their former profession was fishing, they said, we're going back to fishing. But after Calvary and after the resurrection and after the day of Pentecost, they weren't running then. <laughs> they were bold. Oh, yes, they were. They went into the synagogue preaching and teaching. They went into cities preaching and teaching. And they endured persecution for the preaching of the gospel. The Bible says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer with Jesus. Before Pentecost, they were runners. After Pentecost, they were faithful. According to history, every one of Jesus' disciples except John died a martyr's death. Pentecost put something in them. Somebody say amen, and uh, it'll do the same for you. I'm thankful I've experienced my own personal Pentecost. Amen. I'm thankful I had a pastor that preached to me the Word of God and said, no, if it happened in there, it can happen in here. If it said that in the Bible, it can happen in this church. And I thank God for the night he filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I wasn't in an upper room, and it was many years after A.D. 33, but I want to tell you it was just as powerful as that rushing mighty wind and that field of fire and those believers speaking in tongues. In fact, I'll read it in just a minute. One account of one of the individuals that received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, he began to talk about how he felt, and I thought, huh, that's kind of how I felt. But I want to talk about a number of these uh, historical things and how we got to where we are today and why there's an apostolic church on this piece of property in Salem, Illinois and I thank God for it. Make no mistake about it. Our, our, um, our measuring stick is not denominations. Our measuring stick is not other belief systems. Our measuring stick is the Word of God. Make be full aware that it's unwise to compare yourself among yourselves. Be well aware that we believe a church ought to be spirit-directed. Amen. Let's talk about Azusa Street. Everybody say Azusa Street. We coughed up Pentecost 50 years ago when we were in grade school. When we coughed it up and told people that's where we went to church. Uh, what, what about our modern-day Pentecostal roots? Well, let me just share a few with you today. Let's talk about, for a moment, Charles Parham. Charles Parham, and some of these names you ought to write down or, or at least say, you know what, I'm going to study some of these references, and I would encourage you to do that. It'll light a fire in you. 
Charles Parham, his grandfather, was a Methodist circuit-riding preacher. Charles was greatly influenced by the Methodist movement. He enrolled as a student in the Methodist Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas in 1890. He left college in 1893, lasted three years, and disaffiliated with the Methodist Church two years later in 1895. He, he disaffiliated from the Methodist Church because he believed the Methodist Church prevented real ministry by inspiration of God. He opened Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas on October the 15th, 1900, at the turn of the century, at the age of 27. And at the end of his first term, notice, he felt like the, the Methodist Church was not uh, allowing ministry by inspiration of the Spirit. And so he, he started going another direction to open a Bible college. And at the end of the first term, which was at the close of the year 1900 in December, 19, early January, at the end of that first term, he asked his students to find the biblical evidence. This is, this is your homework for the uh, going into next semester. Find biblical evidence for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's all we're going to do. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to find Bible evidence for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When they gathered back together, they had all concluded that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost was speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. They had not received it. They didn't know anything about it. But they studied the Bible and said everybody that got the Holy Ghost spoke in tongues. And on January the 1st, 1901, the clock rolled over to 1901. Agnes Osman, a student at that Bible college who for a couple of weeks had studied the initial evidence of the baptism of the Spirit, she was a student at that school and she asked Parham, she said, if the Bible says when you receive the Spirit you'll speak in tongues, she said, uh, Brother Parham, would you lay your hands on me that I might receive the Holy Spirit? That was on January 1. Two days later, January the 3rd, 1901, Parham and his wife and 12 ministerial students in that Bible school received the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues. All, it happened after they studied the Bible. Well, wouldn't it be great for some folks to get their head back in the Bible? Something might happen. They concluded when they said, you know what, what we studied the last three weeks, that, that it happened in the book of Acts, and now it's happening uh, in Topeka, Kansas. They concluded that the experience they had received was something more than what the holy, holiness movement had taught. Now, let me just share uh, most of these, and I'm going to talk about the Azusa Street Pentecostal outpouring really was birthed out of the Wesleyan holiness movement. Okay, now I'll, I'll give you the little timeline here in just a minute. But the heritage we have, uh, the last step away from that was from the holiness movement. And they believed when they received the Holy Ghost, they said, hey, we didn't learn this in the holiness church. Everybody okay? Okay, they believed it was something uh, beyond that. In the fall of 1903 in Galena, Kansas, a woman in the town was almost completely blind from an eye disease. She was instantly healed in a service in Eldorado Springs, Missouri, and she invite, in a service that Parham was preaching. She immediately invited Parham to Galena, and there were more than 800 people baptized in water, and many hundreds received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
In that revival in Galena, a young football player by the name of Howard Goss was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He did not receive the Holy Ghost until 1906. He ultimately helped found in 1914 the Assemblies of God. He became the first general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, which is a group we are a part of from 1945 to 1951. He helped to ultimately found the Assemblies of God and became the general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. Parham conducted... So the man that started the movement this church is a part of got the Holy Ghost in Kansas in the early 1900s. Parham conducted a short-term Bible school in Houston, Texas from December 1905 through the spring of 1906. One of the young men attending that Bible college in Houston, Texas was a young African-American man by the name of William J. Seymour. He became the leader of the world-famous Azusa Street Revival. So let's talk about William Seymour for a moment. From 1906 to 1909, what happened at the Apostolic Faith Mission at 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles was a miracle. If you study that history, missionaries went around the world taking the holy baptism message all around the world. It spread like wildfire. (laughs) The blessings we are still experiencing today. Don't let anybody tell you it's not real. This little house at 312 Azusa Street was 40 by 60. Now, just recognize how little that is. This ball court from that black line to that black line is 50 feet. This entire court from that black line to that black line back there is 74 feet. So about half of this room, a little less than half, was the size of that house at 312 Azusa Street. The rent was $8 a month. Boy, they covered the expenses of the building and the revival by a wooden box being nailed to the back wall and right over the wooden box, these words were printed, Settle with the Lord. I'm getting some ideas. We want to be apostolic. As many as 600 people crammed into that 40 by 60 house. And many more appeared through the windows. In fact, if you study that, in that three-year period, they shut the street down every day. The Holy Ghost was in control. Services lasted late into the evening, and they had church every night of the week. Seymour, William Seymour, would keep his head behind an orange crate, and when the spirit unction would come on him, he would begin to preach. What happened at Azusa Street spread worldwide and was a catalyst for many mainline organizations and denominations today. It was incredible. You can go into the archives and read uh, portions of press reports in L.A. Times concerning this very event. Strange languages heard. Babel, they called it. Talked about people being healed. They, they, they began to make fun of them. William Durham from Chicago was there and at his church. A single Baptist pastor from Fort Worth, Texas, Ian Bell, received. William Durham was at Azusa Street, went back to Chicago. And as he preached the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and what had happened at Azusa, a man by the name of Ian Bell, a Baptist pastor, was there and received his Pentecostal experience 
received the baptism of the Spirit. He was an educated man and took his experience very seriously. He stayed for 11 months and he wrote this on July the 18th, 1908. God baptized me in his Spirit. Wave after wave fell on me from heaven, striking me in the forehead like electric currents and passing over and through my whole being. The Spirit began to speak through me in a tongue I never heard before and continued for two hours. After three months of testing, I can say before God, this experience is as fresh and sweet as ever. <laughs> oh man, I, I, I identify with some of that. Well, Ian e. Bell became the first general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. When you study the Spirit's outpouring at Azusa Street, you pull the, the thread at Azusa Street. This is how current this is. That thread puckers at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Y'all know, he's on TV, got a big program, got thousands of people that come every Sunday. The Holy Ghost outpouring at Azusa Street affected the entire world, infected Christianity. I tell you what, I want to I rise on this occasion to say I don't want it to get old, I don't want it to get stale, I don't want it to become a tradition. I want the Spirit moving every time we have service. I believe the Spirit of God is here to fill all of us, touch all of us, encourage all of us. Somebody say amen. Well, I just, this is not in your book, it's not in the notes, but I just, here's some of the participants, let's quote them. The participants speak. The Azusa Street participants spoke of the baptism of the Holy Ghost as a decisive turning point in their lives. I would agree. Although they identified previous experiences of conversion and sanctification. Please, listen. Listen now. This is very, very important because we can't leave here as apostolic spirit filled and say, Well, Holy Ghost is all there in you. If you ain't got the Holy Ghost, you ain't got nothing. No, these people identified previous experiences as very important. They realized God had been working in their life and so should we. But their testimonies typically describe the baptism of the Holy Ghost as the time they experienced the full saving power of Jesus Christ. They did not deny they had a relationship with the Lord, but they said, when I received the Holy Ghost, I experienced the full power of Jesus Christ. Let me read some of them. Adolf Rosa, Portuguese Methodist minister from Cape Verde Islands. I quote, all pride and self and conceit disappeared. And I was really dead to the world, for I had Christ within in his fullness. William Durham, who I mentioned, a pastor from Chicago, quoted, uh, said this, and I quote, Then I had such power on me and in me as I never had before. And last but not least, I had a depth of love and sweetness in my soul that I'd never ever dreamed of before, and a holy calm possessed me. Man, we need a baptism of that. A holy calm possessed me, he said, and a holy joy and peace that is deep and sweet beyond anything I ever experienced before, even in the sanctified life. <laughs> and oh, such victory as he gives me all the time. Maggie Geddes, and I quote, she was at Azusa Street, Oh, the love, joy, and peace that flooded my being as I rose from the floor. I was indeed a new creature. C.H. Mason, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, said this. 
And I, uh, wait, it's not a quote. This was wedlock. Oh, this is what he stated is saying he wrote. This was wedlock to Christ. He had complete charge of me. It was a complete death to me. The glory of God filled the temple. This man, C.H. Mason, attended Azusa Street and went to the altar. Listen, he was a pastor. He said, I went to the altar in response to a call for sinners to be justified even though I was the leader of a holiness denomination. And he said this, I went to the altar because it may be that I am not converted. And if not, God can convert me. (laughs) Boy, wouldn't it be great for hungry people to feel that way? You know what, I thank God for what I have, but, but if God has more for me, I'm going for it. Wouldn't it be great for people to say, no, I, yeah, I'm a leader of a denomination, but if I need more, I'm going for it. Oh, clap your hands under the Lord. Amen, I hurry. Let's talk about after Azusa Street. Everybody say after Azusa Street. As sincere apostolic faith Pentecostals began studying the Word of God, The fulfillment of Isaiah 28 happened. Isaiah 28 verse verse 11. The the prophet Isaiah uh, foretold us. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. He's doing that. Amen. The Pentecostal movement was illogical. Listen, this is very important. Don't miss this. You may want to write this down. The Pentecostal movement was a logical and scriptural extension of the ideas of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the Methodist Revival of the 1700s, and the Holiness Revival of the 1800s. When you study the movement of, the, uh, of truth and the Spirit of God and, and the revelation of the Spirit through those movements, you'll say, you know what? I thank God for what I have. Somebody say amen. I thank God for my godly heritage. Somebody say amen. I got a great grandma that was baptized with the Holy Ghost in the early 1900s in East Texas. Uh, My granddad was uh, sought after as a guitar player (laughs) uh, for dances and and, uh, all that kind of stuff. He's a little short guy, singer, and played the guitar. God got a hold of his life. He got filled with the Holy Ghost. I thank God for that. God called him to Humble, Texas, pastor in Humble, Texas, pastor in Shreveport, Louisiana, and he'd go down, walk down the street with his suit on on Saturdays to invite people to church, and he'd walk down the street from the church in his house, and on one of those occasions, he's walking down the street, and I can take you to the street, and he got all the way down to the end of the street where the, the oil refinery was the next thing. My, grand, my paternal grandparents lived right on the corner. And uh, he was walking down that street, and my paternal grandparents were playing dominoes outside on the porch. And uh, when somebody said, oh, here comes the preacher, they rolled the dominoes up and stuck them under the table. I have those dominoes. I have those dominoes. And my mother's dad would walk up on the porch and invite my Baptist grandparents to church. And, and finally, they, my grandmother went. She was a Sunday school teacher in the Baptist church. Got diplomas for passing all kind of studies for, to, to teach Sunday school in the Baptist church. But I want to tell you, the Holy Ghost filled her. She was baptized in Jesus' name. I thank God for my apostolic heritage. 
I thank God it's more than just a story in a book to me. It happened in my family. Oh, give the Lord a good hand clap. I don't want to go into all that, but the Lord was pouring out His Spirit in the early 1900s and people were speaking in tongues and Holy Ghost baptism was taking place and that's, that's what they knew. But, but uh, then in about 1913, there was another great, great move that happened. In 1913, there was a camp meeting that was held at Arroyo Seco. Uh, in fact, if you uh, in Southern California and you see the Coliseum where you, uh, the University of Southern California plays all their home football games, that park in that area, in fact, uh, there's a pastor out there in Southern California that's done a lot of research. There's uh, all that ground has been sold at, pri- at premium price. There's people coming there and built businesses, and, he, and, and they've documented where this spiritual outpouring happened at this Arroyo Seco camp meeting. Nobody's ever touched it. It's still, there's, it's still nobody's built on it. Nobody's sold it. It's still there, and, uh, but it's not far from the, the Coliseum where USC plays its football game. So anytime you see USC playing, football just get a little not because you're a USC fan but just know you're just about on the spot where a Holy Ghost revelation hit the earth because at this camp meeting it was a worldwide camp meeting thousands attended it was a month long it began on April the 15th 1930 the main speaker was Maria Woodworth Eder expectations were high and they were fulfilled this the holy ghost uh, preaching had been uh, happening for a number of years people were receiving the holy ghost and 364 people received the holy ghost in this camp meeting but in this camp meeting they noticed something robert e McAllister, a canadian preacher who had received the holy ghost in azusa street in 1906 was getting ready to baptize people during this camping. They have church and they didn't have a baptismal service. He was getting ready to baptize some people in that camp meeting and he explained that single immersion was the proper mode for baptism, not triple immersion. They would, immer- they would dip them three times. He said in the New Testament they only baptized them one time. He said it while he was standing in the water and as proof He cited the baptismal accounts of the book of Acts. He's getting ready to baptize people and said in the book of Acts they only dipped them once. And then he said, and what else I've found is the apostles baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He stated this standing in the water. Nobody ever heard this before. He said they baptized, they never baptized using the words Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as triple immersion requires. History records that an audible, inaudible shudder, not an audible, inaudible, just an inaudible, an inaudible shudder swept over the congregation and McAllister stopped talking and fell momentarily silent. He just stated, we just dip them once and the apostles baptized them in Jesus' name and everything went silent. A missionary from China named Frank Denny leaped into the water and asked McAllister not to say anything more about this matter. He said, don't say anything else. All of a sudden, somebody's saying something that not everybody agrees with. So there was, an, uh, there was a little bit of contention. John Sheppey, I believe is the way he pronounced his last name, was so troubled by that baptismal event that that evening he spent the entire night in prayer. 
And while he was praying, he began to realize that during that camp meeting, everybody that received a miracle, they'd received it after they'd been prayed for in Jesus' name. He said, historical records, history records, he said, I noticed that any devils that were cast out during that camp meeting, they came out when we called on the name of Jesus. He said, everything we did, we did in the name of Jesus. And while he was praying all night long, he realized there was power in the spoken name of Jesus. And early the next morning, he comes out of his tent and history records, he went running through that camp shouting, that he had received a revelation of the power of the name of Jesus. History records that he said, I see it, I see it, I see it. The power's in the name. <laughs> Philippians says it. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Come on, it's in your Bible. I don't care what they said in the third century. I'm telling you what they said in the Bible. Uh-oh. Frank Ewart, a Baptist Bush missionary, was deeply impressed by what had happened. He was shocked. This man running through the camp. I see it. He asked him to explain. He'd been dismissed from the Baptist. Frank Ewart was a Baptist missionary. He had got dismissed from the Baptist church when he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> McAllister went home with him and suggested that the words Lord, meaning Master, Jesus, and Christ, meaning anointed one, represent Father, Son, and Holy Ghost respectfully, respectively. When the apostles baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said they were fulfilling Matthew 28, 19. Wow. Ewart records that when he preached on subjects concerning the power of the name of Jesus, he was astonished by the tremendous results of healings and spiritual baptisms. They began to realize the powers in the name. So all of a sudden these brand new believers who for the last 10 or so years had been receiving the Holy Ghost, they realized that baptism should be performed in the name of Jesus Christ. Folks, what you have is not an accident. What you have is tied to the apostles and the prophets. Oh, I'm here to thank the Lord for what I have today. Come on, I don't want to be disparaging to what anybody else has. But I want to tell you, friend, the Holy Ghost is real. And the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus. And demons are cast out in the name of Jesus. And blind eyes are healed in the name of Jesus. I've been baptized in the name of Jesus. Oh, I'm not the preacher today. First baptisms to result from the Royal Seiko camp meeting occurred in November of 1913 at the 8th Annual Pentecostal Convention in Winnipeg. In other words, this rumbling started in that camp meeting. It didn't burst forth until November of 1913. McAllister was preaching. He preached the first sermon on the exclusive use of the name of, name of Jesus in water baptism and 30 people First recorded evidence that in, in the modern age in Winnipeg, Canada, 30 people were baptized in Jesus' name. These men and many others concluded that this practice had great significance. 
regarding the doctrine of God, the reason why there is such power when believers preach, pray, and baptize in Jesus' name is because the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, friend, you've got a great heritage. It, the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. Somebody say amen. Somebody say amen. I'm glad I'm in this church. I've had people say, well, I'm not going to your church anymore. I'm going to this other church because I can get more stuff at this other church. Well, if, if church is about you getting stuff, then you just pick your poison. Well, not poison. Just pick your flavor, I guess I should say. I don't want to say poison. Just like Baskin-Robbins. Just pick the one you like. But I thank God there's a church that's built on the apostles and the prophets. No, it's not perfect. No, and not everybody here is perfect. But I want to be in a church that's built on the Word of God. I said, I want to be in a church that's built on the word of the Lord. Oh, clap your hands under the Lord, and I, I close. Let's get back to George Farrell. George Farrell, he married that girl that he was writing in Oregon. Her name was Lula, if you remember. Her name was Lula. Sorry. George Farrell, Lula married. They were part of the Pentecostal mission. They also pastored the first Pentecostal church on Hilburn Street in Stockton, California, till 1927. There are those in central Texas who remember his ministry at the Rocky Point Pentecostal Church at Ranger, uh, Texas, in the 1930s. One of the men, 92-year-old William Boone, said Farrell was a kind and loving pastor. Boone remembered Farrell telling about being put in a foster home and the physical abuse he experienced there. His last pastorate was in Humble, Texas in 1940s. He retired in Central Texas and attended the United Pentecostal Church in Cisco, Texas, pastored by Frony Blackwell. George Farrow left a great legacy. Farrow's Pentecostal experience was the greatest thing that ever happened to him, he said. And in one of his letters to Lula Brumwell, he wrote, Oh, bless his dear name. It is utterly impossible to tell what I see in him. While I'm writing you, his spirit is giving me wonderful revelations of him and the wonderful Christ. And often I must stop and worship and praise him in other tongues. Hallelujah, glory, glory, glory. George wrote that uh, what some consider an anthem, the anthem of oneness Pentecostals. George Farrow, I started this, this lesson with him. He said, well, I'm not sure who George Farrow is. Well, when I start singing this song, you might know who you might remember. You'll know who he is now. George Farrow wrote, The mighty God is Jesus, the Prince of Peace is He, the everlasting Father, the King eternally, the wonderful in wisdom by whom all things were made. The fullness of the Godhead in Jesus is displayed. Oh, it's all in Him. It's all in Him. The fullness of the Godhead. It's all in Him. Yes, it's all in Him. Oh, it's all in Him. The mighty God is Jesus, and it's all in Him. Anybody glad you know who He is? Oh, let's stand together and give the Lord praise. Why don't you just clap your hands for what you have, for what you know, for what you've experienced in this apostolic heritage.
Oh, hallelujah. Let's praise him as we close this class. Lord, we praise you for what you've done in us. Lord, we praise you for your power in our lives. Baptize us all again today, Lord. Let your truth march on, Lord, in Jesus' name. Somebody say, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's time to start our next service, but we're going to give you just a little break. Thank you for being patient. Amen. Aren't you glad for what you know, what you've experienced? Greet somebody and tell them you're glad to see them in church today. Amen. Share the love of the Lord with those that have come to worship with us.